all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today we're going to talk about men's health. So June is Men's Health Month, and in particular, Men's Health Week is this week. It is June 14th through the 20th. And so we want to kind of talk about some issues that are affecting men and how to keep them healthy and fit. If you have a question or a comment for us, our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Our email is fit at mpbonline.org. Or you can go over to Facebook to Healthy Habits with Josie and you can drop me a message or a question there. So before we dive fully into men's health, I want to spend a little bit of time on heat-related illness, and that's because it is doggone hot out there today, guys, in Mississippi. We have got um, heat advisories today. The kind of real feel or heat index is somewhere around 109, 110 um, for today, and so that is a dangerous uh, situation, and I know uh, we're pretty used to heat here in the South, uh, but it doesn't mean that we can't have um, problems from that. And so the the, kind of the range of problems that can occur uh, from heat-related illness can be something like a heat rash, um, sunburn, those types of things, which sunburns can be quite um, unpleasant and lead to some other health issues on down the road. But then there are things like heat cramps, heat exhaustion, heat stroke, and just like everything else we talk about on this show, a little bit of prevention goes a long way. And so how do we prevent these heat-related illnesses? Well, first of all, do we need to be outside right now? Um, You know, if it is that we need to exercise or, you know, we need to get our steps in, absolutely kudos. I want you to to exercise, but let's think about doing it safely. Um, The middle of the day is not the time to do that. Um, I saw several people jogging yesterday um, when I was out and it was brutally hot yesterday as well. So be very, very careful with that. Um, Early morning hours or later evening hours, definitely when the sun is not at its peak in the sky between, you know, 
between about 10 and 2, but really even up to about 4 p.m., um, the sun is at its brightest uh, here in Mississippi, and the rays um, are the strongest, leading to more sunburns um, and then also to higher temperatures. So if you're going to be exercising early in the day or later in the evening is the best time to go to help prevent these things. The other is um, that sunscreen, putting that sunscreen on and reapplying that sunscreen if you're going to be outdoors um, for any length of time. Um, one thing that I see folks do um, with sunscreen is they wait till they're outside and they start to apply it. Well, one, pretty much as soon as you step out of the door, you're going to start to melt. Um, it's really hot and humid out there. And if you wait until you're out there and your skin is already slicky, um, then it's going to be much harder to get that lotion to, to rub into the skin and those kinds of things. Um, so applying that when you're still inside and about 15 minutes before you have to leave. So if you're headed out for a day of work, you know, just make that kind of part of your morning routine to apply that sunscreen. And the places I see folks miss are the tops of their ears, um, the bridge of their nose. Um, and then if you're going to be wearing, um, you know, sandals or flip-flops or anything like that, the tops of your feet. Um, those are all areas that tend to get kind of either skipped or glossed over um, when applying sunscreen. And those are areas that um, can get intense burns in in those places. Even if you are a um, not out in the heat, let's say you're a truck driver or um, someone who travels a lot for work in an automobile, that those sun rays coming in through the windows can still cause skin damage and skin burn. Um, so make sure that you're applying that sunscreen, even if you're going to be traveling in the car, um, because you can still get a burn. And then later on down the road, those burns, of course, are doing damage kind of at the cellular level in the skin and increasing your risk for different types of skin cancer there. All right. Um, clothing choice also matters. So wearing loose fitting clothing. Okay. So not things that are super skin tight and also light color colored clothing help us stay a little bit uh, cooler as well. Um, Making sure that we have access to some type of hydration. And this is probably the question I get asked the most by, um, by patients, by parents, you know, in general is how much should we be drinking when we're outside and what should we be drinking? Should we be reaching for Gatorades and sports drinks and that kind of thing? And, you know, it's not a one size fits all answer. There are different things that go into to play here, so to speak. And one of that is, is age, right? You know, how old are we? Any other medical conditions, right? If we've got kidney issues or heart failure or diabetes or these different types of things, then the content of what we're drinking, how much sugar's in it, how much um, um, other salt, you know, salts are in it. Um, matters as well as the volume. So if you have um, a medical condition where you have a fluid restriction, like maybe you have um, chronic kidney disease or congestive heart failure or something like that, and you have a certain fluid amount that you're supposed to stay under, reach out to your healthcare provider and say, well, what about when it's hot? 
what do you know, how much, what's my fluid, um, requirement or how much should I be drinking when it's hot and I'm outside and sweating and those types of things. Okay. Um, for a general rule for folks, um, if you're outside in the heat and working and exerting yourself and, um, sweating a lot, especially if you're out there for more than an hour, then an electrolyte replacement drink is appropriate. And so, um, Electrolyte replacement drinks can be things like Powerade, Gatorade, those kinds of things. Be careful. Those often have a lot of sugar in them. Um, I really like um, Propel Fitness Water, not because I'm partial to that brand or anything, but it's got the electrolytes in it without having a lot of the extra sugar and artificial colorings in it because uh, there is just nothing um, – Nothing in nature that is that neon blue that comes in some of those sports drinks. So we got to think about what is in there. Um, and then think about if you uh, are going to have access to food, right? Fruits and vegetables contain fluids, but they also contain um, electrolytes and vitamins and minerals and those kinds of things. So uh, just make sure you got access to something to drink. Don't wait until you're thirsty to drink. Go ahead and be sipping along the way. And you remember our kind of rule of thumb is that our urine should be light yellow to clearish um, color there. And that's when we know we're adequately hydrated. All right, we'll go over to the phone lines and talk with Kat and Mobile. Good morning, Kat. You're on the air. How can I help you? Good morning. I have two questions. My initial okay. question is about um, if you could explain macros, but then you started to talk about sunscreen. And so um, That's I had okay. an additional question. Um, I'm actually allergic to SPF. I don't know what, what it is about it, but I don't use, like, facial moisturizers or anything like that. Okay. Because okay. I'll blow up like Miss Puff on SpongeBob. So I'm oh my goodness. just wondering if, um, if you had any ideas, like I use shea butter, but if you had mm -hmm. any ideas about uh, people that may be allergic to the SPF that's in mm -hmm. sunscreen, and then if you could explain macros, and then I'll hang up. Thank you. Absolutely. You're so welcome. Thanks so much for giving, us, giving me a call. So um, it may be that you're allergic to the to a certain compound that's in the sunscreen. And so there are different kind of blockers that can be utilized for that. So the first kind of step in that would be to work with a dermatologist to find out exactly what you're allergic to in that particular you know, formulation and get their recommendation for an alternative to that. In the meantime, then you want to use um, clothing, sunglasses, you know, a, a wide brimmed hat, those kinds of things to block the, you know, the, the sun's rays from getting to your skin as much as you can there. Um, as far as macros, so uh, in nutrition, there are um, macronutrients and micronutrients. So macronutrients um, are the uh, big, big three, so to speak, uh, carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. And then our micronutrients are, are things like vitamins and minerals and uh, antioxidants and, and all these kinds of things. And so when we're building an eating plan, um, we want to think about what the distribution of macronutrients are across our plate because they each play a different role um, in running our body. Now, a lot of folks get hung up on um, tracking their macros and trying to hit certain targets, those kinds of things. I tend to, to not 
um, work as much toward that because we just want to focus on a balanced eating pattern, right? And so um, where things can can go wrong is when we, like, let's say we get too much fat, in particular saturated fat in our diet, and that can increase things like heart disease and cholesterol and those kinds of things. Um, it's more about the quality of the food that you're eating. Um, and so we approach our um, our counseling in terms of uh, a plate method. Um, and when, when you, when you build a, a plate according to this plate method, then it's a pretty good balance of macronutrients in there. Um, about half of the plate as fruits and veggies, a quarter of the plate as grain and a quarter of the plate as protein. One of the things that confuses people is that macronutrients don't exist kind of in uh, in a silo in isolation from other macronutrients aside from things like uh, like butter or you know oil those are a, you know just a, a fat but let's take um, beans for instance right so beans would um, largely be considered a carbohydrate right but they are also an excellent source of protein. So those are uh, kind of two uh, macronutrients combined together there. Um, even, let's say, chicken breasts, right? Chicken breasts we, we would identify as a protein, but there's still fat in a chicken breast. So things don't exist just as kind of one single solitary um, macronutrient uh, unless they've been messed with um, or, or processed. Uh, so eating... A, a much more balanced meal is a way to go. Now, if you want your macro goals, like if you're if you're training for something, you're trying to get to a certain body weight, uh, like body fat percentage, you're a weightlifter, something like that, and you want kind of targeted macronutrient goals to work towards, I can't recommend a registered dietitian enough. Um, they are the experts in determining a calorie goal and then the macronutrient breakdown of that. Um, that calorie uh, goal so that you know what you should be eating there. And you can always find a dietitian in your area by going to eat right, like R I G H T dot org. That's the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And you can put in your zip code and it will show you dietitians in your area. And then of course I have tons of dietitian um, colleagues and um Friends, if you uh, have trouble finding one, you can always send me an email at fit at mpbonline.org, and I'll put you in contact with somebody or find somebody in your area. Those are great questions. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks 
for joining us today. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC, and we're going to be celebrating Men's Health Month and talking about men's health issues, Um, but it's so hot today. I felt like I had to spend a little bit of time talking about heat-related illness and the ways um, we prevent those, and we've had some good conversation around things like sunburn and sunscreen and um, hydration. Um, There are kind of two other things I want to briefly talk about in terms of hydration. Um, and that is things not to drink when we're outside, when we're out in the heat and those types of things. And that's caffeinated beverages and alcoholic beverages. Both of those dehydrate you. Okay. Both of those increase urine output. Okay. They're diuretics. And so they will make you urinate more. And if we're not replacing those things with, um, water um, or an electrolyte drink that we talked about before, then you're more likely to dehydrate and um, and more likely to suffer a heat-related illness. So trying to avoid those two things. Um, one of the other things we talk about is staying cool indoors. So if you're inside, air conditioning is where we want to be, an air-conditioned environment, especially on a day like today. What about um, just fans? Um, fans just kind of circulate the heat, cool it off by a little bit, but as a prevention strategy in extreme heat, um, they're not always um, adequate to prevent heat-related illness, especially if you're going to be um, there for prolonged periods of time. Um, so if your AC is out or something like that, think about um, places that you can go, um, like, a, like a mall, indoor mall, um, grocery store, things like that, to get out of that heat and exposure to some uh, some cooler temps and some air conditioning to help prevent that. All right. So the two kind of more dangerous ones that we, we think about are heat exhaustion and heat stroke. And there are some, some subtle differences. Both of them are significant health problems and need uh, the appropriate level of, um, of care. Uh, heat exhaustion is a, a little bit on the the less severe, but still a significant problem. Um, How do we know? What are some things that we should be looking for um, that would point toward a heat exhaustion? Um, That's heavy sweating, which is no, a no brainer, Um, but actually cold kind of pale clammy type of skin, um, that it's, it's incongruent with what you would think, right? So you're hot, Um, and you're sweating and those kinds of things with the skin is actually cool and clammy to the touch. That is kind of your, uh, the warning bells should go off that you are in heat exhaustion. And if we don't intervene and do something, um, else, then we can progress to heat stroke with heat stroke. You actually, um, almost stop sweating. Um, the skin becomes, um, hot and red. Occasionally it'll be damp, but it's usually, um, pretty dry and that kind of heavy sweating stops headache, dizziness, nausea, vomiting, those types of things. And the actual body temperature is very, very high, um, 103 or so. Um, and that can be very, very dangerous. So if we're in the heat exhaustion phase, we want to move to a cool place right? Um, take off any kind of, you know, tight clothing or, um, you know, if you have a layer on, take that off. 
um, wet cloths on your face, arms, uh, and then start to sip some water. Don't guzzle it, okay? Um, once we get to that heat stroke phase, we've stopped sweating, our skin is hot and red and dry, that is a medical emergency. Um, of course, again, move to a cooler place, um, but and you can apply some of those cool cloths, but go ahead and call 911 right away. All right, we're going to go over to the phone lines and talk with Don in Tennessee. Good morning. How can I help you? Good morning. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, nose sprays. Okay. Uh, I have glaucoma. Mm -hmm. I had the operation a few years ago, and I go every six months and get my pressure checked in my eyes. And Mm -hmm. this time I got checked, uh, my doctor told me that it was a little high. It was 18, and um, my left eye was uh, 12, mm-hmm. and she said that uh, 18 was high, so she was mm-hmm. and she asked me, and I've been using any nose spray or anything, and I said, mm-hmm. yes, I did, and it, would that affect it, and she said, yes, it would, mm-hmm. and she said if it had steroids, and so I didn't ask any more about it. She said she used just plain salt water or something mm-hmm. for her every day. She sprays it up her nostrils. Mm-hmm. And that works for her. But I want to know if, uh, can, I, uh, can I just use table salt in plain water or should I get saline? Excellent question. So, we'll kind of start with the beginning part. Um, you mentioned the, the kind of link. And so, uh, Intranasal steroids—that's things like Flonase—are um, can in, can make glaucoma worsen. Um, so she was right there on you. So the second reason, the second kind of thing to think about is um, what we're using the nasal spray for. So I'm assuming it's for kind of chronic um, allergies in the nose or nasal stuffiness, that kind of thing. And so um, looking at Salt water, like you mentioned, is a great way to kind of flush out some of those things. If you have extra mucus and that kind of stuff, it can flush those things out there. Um, I do recommend using a um, a formulated preparation for that, okay? Because you want to get the concentration of salt in the water correct. If not, it's going to burn, okay? If you've got an, an incorrect balance there, it's going to cause a lot of discomfort and that kind of thing. So. Um, going with um, a commercially available uh, nasal saline is a great option there. If you're mixing your own, um, like say for a neti pot or um, a, a nasal bottle, something like that, they make little salt packets that you use um, in those. The thing that we have to be really um, focused on is not using just plain tap water in that because um, you're shooting it up into your sinuses. And so you don't want there to be any impurities or anything like that in it. So bottled water is usually um, recommended for that or um, boiling your tap water and then letting it cool absolutely completely. Do not no, not shoot hot water up your nose either. That would not be um, not be recommended. You'd be calling mm-hmm. me for other reasons for that. Um and I actually like the saline mist. Um, so it comes in a little, um, little kind of metal can, looks like a can of hairspray almost. And it is much more gentle. Um, it is much more of just a mist type, uh, preparation there for, for daily use. 
because it gets up in there and stays up in there a little bit better. Just plain squirt bottles of saline, they tend to drip out and cause more eye, um, kind of eye tearing and that kind of stuff. So I like the saline mist um, for that um, as well. So the so the one that I bought, a, a saline solution, uh, I don't need to use that. Is it specially formulated for nasal stuff? Uh, it's just nasal relief spray, but... Uh, yeah, that'd be fine. That'd be fine. Um, those are fine. Just not mixing up kind of your own uh, salt water without following um, some guidelines about how much salt to add in there. Anything that's specially formulated for the nose that's just salt and water um, and usually has a little bit of a buffer in there as well to keep it from burning should be fine there. How about but this, always... Uh, go ahead. How about this oxy... Okay, so that's Afrin. Um, so I would not um, use that either. Afrin is a um, what we call a vasoconstrictor. So it makes the blood vessels um, shrink down um, and, and get real tight. And so your nose will actually get accustomed to that and you'll have rebound congestion when you stop using it. So Afrin is usually a really, really short day thing. And I definitely probably wouldn't do it with someone with glaucoma um, either. Um, you know, if your ophthalmologist recommended just the saline spray, then that's probably what I would stick with. Um, or, you know, seeing, um, seeing your allergist or your regular primary care provider, whoever prescribed the Flonase to ask for an alternative um, to that. But I wouldn't use the Afrin. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. You're so welcome. Thank you for giving us a call. We're going to go down to Balexi and talk with Craig today. Good morning, Craig. How can I help you? Hey, good morning. Mine's back to heat-related. Uh, uh -huh. one, one comment, one question is when, when I'm walking, I have a 22-mile circuit, and I bring extra water to dump on my head. Mm -hmm. And I have a question. Is is there a time or a period where you can drink too much water, and does mm -hmm. it have does it have should it be warm or cold? Excellent question. So absolutely, if if we are heavily sweating then we are losing not just water, but we're losing those electrolytes as well. So if we're just replacing with plain water, then we can actually cause some electrolyte abnormalities, in particular messing with our sodium levels. And that can lead to um, alterations in brain function and those kinds of things. So, you know, if you're going to be out and you know, heavily sweating, um, and more than, you know, more than an hour and even something like today, I would say even shorter than an hour, then one of those electrolyte replacements like a Propel um, would not be a bad idea to have on board as well there. Um, as far as temperature, if we use ice cold water, um, that is more likely to cause stomach cramps um, and some nausea when it's so hot outside and we've been, you know, especially if we've been exerting ourselves there. Um, so more kind of uh, not warm water, but just kind of room temperature or mildly cool, but not. Um, not ice cold water would be a thing there. And then in, in terms of, <laughs> you didn't ask me about it, but I'm going to say something about it. Dumping water on your head and those kinds of things. Again, be careful that we're not dumping super cold water on there um, as well. That's going to do some different um, changes to how we, our blood vessels and how they uh, op are open or closed. Um, I like these things that are called cool towels. Um, and they're, they're like a microfiber almost. And you 
can pour the water on it and then put it around your neck and those kinds of things. And it helps with evaporation and cooling. Um, it's what I give my son uh, when he's running cross country and those kinds of things to, to help cool off there. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, your host and nurse practitioner at UMMC. We've had some great questions about heat-related illness, um, staying hydrated out in this heat. Y'all stay safe out there. It is uh, powerful hot today. And we're going to be talking about some men's health-related issues. But we've got a caller on the line that I want to get to. We'll go talk with Sarah in Arkansas. Hello, Sarah. What can I do for you today? Hi. Um, well, I'm super curious about okay. <laughs> a medication alternative. Okay. Um, I'm only 39, but I have arthritis in my knee, and I just had a left knee patellar chondroplasty to get okay. some of that out. Mm-hmm. But I take Xarelto, which is a blood thinner. Mm-hmm. which means I can't take any over-the-counter NSAIDs. Right. Also, I'm allergic to sulfa. Okay. Which means I can't take Celebrex. <laughs> I right. just, I, I really don't know what to do in this situation. Okay, okay. How long have you had um, problems with arthritis? Uh, about two years. Okay. Okay. Was it after an injury or it just developed? The surgeon said that it was from a trauma and it could have happened any time in my life. Okay. Okay. Um, Any other kind of things that might be contributing um, to arthritis, any other medical problems or anything like that would be one kind of thing to think about. You haven't, you didn't mention your weight, um, but if we're, a little overweight, then taking some of that weight off will help with knee pain as well. Um, but usually my go-to is getting folks in to strengthen the quad muscles. Um, so the muscle in the top part of the leg, when we stand up, right, uh, gravity pulls down on our leg. And when we have knee pain or arthritis in our knee, then, uh, that, 
gravitational pull on that increases the pain at the knee joint if our muscles are not kind of helping stabilize that knee joint there. So some physical therapy to help with um, quad strengthening. So not just rehabilitation after the the surgery, but actually kind of targeted strengthening of the muscles for arthritis uh, would be beneficial. And then once completing the physical therapy, transitioning to a community fitness program, a lot of times folks just get kind of a home exercise program um, when they uh, leave physical therapy and and oftentimes kind of backslide um, back into um, not exercising that muscle as much as, as we should to keep it there. And then looking right. at looking at foods that while certainly are not going to cure the arthritis, can help decrease inflammation um, in the area, so or in the in the body. So things that increase um, inflammation are going to be more processed foods, um, uh, sugar, um, sodas, those types of things. And things that decrease inflammation are more of your fruits and vegetables that are kind of packed with antioxidants. Um, and my favorite is dark berries. They're extremely high in antioxidants. And so they're a great place to start looking at adding more anti-inflammatory foods into, um, your diet, um, blueberries, strawberries, cherries, those types of things, um, okay. are really, really high in, um, in phytonutrients, which are good for decreasing inflammation. Um, but we can't just add those and not change anything else about the diet. You know, if you take a, take a good look at, at the diet and see if there's anything um, that has kind of refined sugar and refined flours and um, those kinds of things in it and try to back off of those as, as well. That is great advice. When I went to my last checkup at orthopedics, my surgeon, I asked him, you know, can I, can I get back on the elliptical? Can I exercise? Mm-hmm. He said, yeah, that's fine. Um, if you're going to be doing squats, do not bend that knee further than 90 degrees. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so that's um, a great point to, that kind of further highlights my suggestion of working with um, either a physical therapist or like an exercise physiologist, kinesiologist um, type person, because they understand those things, right? Um, a lot of programs that are out there that you can just kind of grab off the internet um, to do weight training um, will take I'm you really going to look into this anti-inflammatory diet. That was yeah. such great advice. Thank you so yeah. much. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for giving us a call, and I hope that knee gets to feeling better. All right, let's go talk to Bobby in Pontotoc County this morning. Hello, Bobby. What can we do for you? How y'all doing? I got a uh, question I want to ask about high blood pressure, but first I'd like to say be careful about running water up your nose. I had a problem with that one time. I washed my nose out and I wound up with a serious air infection. I liked another. Mm-hmm. I had that. I, I, I don't know. called the back pressure some way through that. Uh, duck it goes to your ear but I don't know if that happens every time somebody runs water up their nose or not but that could be a problem but what I was going to ask is uh, uh, we got into an argument here uh, some of my kinfolks from me not too long ago about high blood pressure what what I'm wanting to know is is why human beings is the only ones that have high blood pressure how come dogs and cats and Horses and cows and jaybirds don't have it. Oh, they do sometimes. 
So different animals will actually have some different blood pressure issues as well. You know, blood pressure is a function of how stiff the uh, blood vessels are. And so if there are, especially things like monkeys, um, pigs, um, even some rats, if they have alterations in their blood vessel function, they can have high blood pressure. My sweet husband is a biochemist and actually works on preeclampsia, so high blood pressures in pregnancy. And they actually use... Um, rat models uh, for some of those kinds of things. So some animals do get high blood pressure. Well, how do, uh, how do you know if your dog's got high blood pressure or not? <laughs> well, that would be a question for your vet. That one's going to be a little outside of my scope of, of practice and knowledge there. Um, but that, so that would be the one to ask, uh, ask your vet uh, about that one there. But different animals can get um, high blood pressure. You think vets? Uh, well, I had never heard anybody say anything about dogs or cats or horses or cows having high blood pressure before. And I wondered about that. I said, I wondered if, if humans was the only ones that had that problem. But, uh, I mean, you know, you just don't hear nobody say nothing about it. Yep. And humans, we, you know, we have a little bit more control over things. You know, animals usually have a relatively um, stable diet. Um, they're they're kind of given a, a pretty well-matched food uh, for what their nutritional needs are. Um, but humans, we, we pick things for ourselves uh, to eat. And a lot of times that is not... Um, not the best nutritional foods for us to keep us from getting uh, high blood pressure and other cardiovascular diseases. So we've got that whole free will thing added in the added in the mix there that often leads us to, to some trouble there. But that was a great question. Thank you so much for giving us a call today. Anything All right. Can, Let's talk. A, go ahead. Is there anything oh. you can eat that will lower your blood pressure? Absolutely. So we want to focus on things that are not not as processed and not as heavy in sodium, okay? Those things tend to raise blood pressure. So more fruits, veggies, whole grains, less fried things, less um, fatty things, and less kind of boxed or processed um, things. Those are all kind of what helps shift our balance back over to a normal blood pressure. Okay, then. Thank you, ma'am. You're so welcome. Thank you for giving us a call today. Uh, you know, and that's a, a great, uh, you know, thing for me to kind of plug and reach out and push the fact that, you know, we're talking about men's health, but um, heart disease is the number one killer of, of men. We tend to think about Go Red for Women, which is a very important uh, campaign, um, but heart disease in men is still the number one killer of men. Um, so we have to think about things, uh, especially the risk factors for heart disease, like diet, exercise, what our blood pressure is, what our waist circumference is, those types of things, um, and helping to de- decrease that risk of, of heart disease. Kind of two uh, two things I want to make sure we kind of get to and talk about today. One is testicular health and testicular cancer. Um, I feel that that one doesn't get kind of as much uh, press or as much airtime as maybe prostate cancer, which we absolutely want to talk about that one as well. Um, but testicular cancer is a, a cancer of young 
men. Okay. The, um, the age range for testicular cancer, the more common age range for testicular cancer is between 15 and 35 years of age. Um, with the kind of the average being in the early thirties, uh, when I was in nursing school, one of my classmates husband actually, uh, had testicular cancer while we were in nursing school. And so it's one of those things that we want to catch early, And so we do that with um, at-home kind of checks and screenings for that. So we're probably pretty um, comfortable with breast self-exams, but the same goes for the men with testicular self-exams. And so it's a a once-a-month activity um, after a warm bath or shower. And the reason for doing it after the warm bath or shower is because that heat kind of relaxes the skin, um, in that area, um, in the scrotum and makes it easier to fill things. Right. And so you want to examine one testicle at a time. Um, usually the way I recommend or kind of describe it to folks is, um, the, your index finger and your middle finger kind of in at the, backside of the scrotal sac, so underneath one of the testicles and the thumb on top, and you're kind of just rolling it um, in between those fingers so that you can feel any kind of lumps or bumps, anything like that. Um, They're usually not painful, Um, so um, any kind of bump that you may feel um, is usually not painful. Um, Be careful that you don't kind of freak out about kind of the um, the um, spermatic cord because sometimes you can kind of feel that feels kind of ropey in there. That's not what we're talking about. But the best way to kind of pick up on things that might be uh, abnormal is to do it every month, right? Because you then you know what yours feel like, and from month to month you'll be able to go. That did not feel like that last time I did this. Um, and make sure you do both. And if you're ever, ever, ever uncertain about whether something is something to be concerned about, you go on over to your regular healthcare provider and get them to do an exam and get it worked up from there. But that's a really important part of um, men's screening. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, and we're going to hop right on over to the phone line. So we've got a couple callers on the line, and we've got just a few minutes left in the show. So we'll start with Mikey in Mobile. Hello, Mikey. What can I do for you today? 
Oh, good morning. My, my question uh, is reduced, but um, this time of year, I have to do a lot more physical work outside, or mm-hmm. I'm blessed to be able to do a lot more physical work outside, so I do. And frankly, it helps me with my arthritic sorts of um, challenges um, that, that, uh, that started when I was very young um, uh, due to um, ext- a near-fatal accident, okay? Um, mm-hmm. Uh, my question is: Does it is it better or worse to increase your salt intake a, a bit? In other words, um, uh, first of all, because I'm exercising more, I tend to mm-hmm. eat more salty foods, like maybe a little bite of cheese here and there, mm-hmm. or um, a little uh, a bite of a bed sausage. You know, to just right. uh, you know keep my blood sugar right and things. But am I messing with my salt? stuff too much well so we a little bit to think about is if you have any other medical conditions that are kind of salt driven like high blood pressure heart failure those kinds of things increasing your salt i don't i don't and i'm so grateful yeah i just lost a very very dear friend um and next door neighbor to um congestive heart failure so I'm, mm, so sorry. I'm still grieving yeah. that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, and then think about, you know, what um, what you're choosing. You know, so you mentioned cheese, you mentioned sausage, those kinds of things. Those are very fat-heavy foods as well. So those wouldn't necessarily be my go-tos, especially the processed meats, because those are going to increase your risk for kind of gut problems and colon cancer and those kinds of things. Um, so of the two of those, the cheese would probably be the one I would go with more often than that, but I would probably choose something um, even a little bit healthier than that, maybe a yogurt um, with some fruit, those types of things there. Um, but I don't think you necessarily have to add um, salt-rich foods to your diet. Just eat a variety of fruits and vegetables, and then if you're going to be outside um, doing things, then using one of those um, replacement drinks like a like a Propel or something like that is is not a terrible idea as long as you don't have any kidney issues. Thank you, Mikey, for giving me a call. (laughs) All right. Let's um, hop over to Sue in Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. We got just a few minutes. What can I do for you? I just want to mention that men can have breast cancer, too, since it's men's health. Yes, ma'am. So, so what? I guess they would watch for the same symptoms that women would have uh, knots in their breasts, but I've heard of men having breast cancer, so I just thought I'd mention that. Absolutely. You are very correct. There is male breast cancer. That is a thing. And so those breast um, self-exams are completely appropriate for men to do as well, to feel in that area, um, looking for any lumps and bumps. Also, just looking in the mirror to see if anything is kind of asymmetrical and doesn't look the same as the other um, breast. Looking at the nipple, make sure we don't have any um, discharge or drainage or bleeding, anything like that from the nipple. And then making sure to feel up into the armpit as well, because that is where the lymph nodes that drain um, the chest wall, a lot of those are in that particular area. And so making sure to kind of feel up into that area. Um, it is important to do. And so while you're doing the testicular self-exam, that's a great time to do the breast self-exam as well there. Um, so a great point, um, Sue. Thank you so much for um, calling us there. All right, guys, that brings us almost to the end of the show. Um, I do want to briefly mention that the American Cancer Society has um, updated their recommendation on colon cancer screening to now start at age 45. Um, there are some different uh, screening tools 
tools out there, including a stool kind of um, genetic analysis, looking for kind of genetic markers from the actual cancer. That's called Cologuard is the one um, that you may have seen commercials about on television there. Um, So that's a a non-invasive test for people who are at average risk for colon cancer. This would not be someone who is symptomatic and having rectal bleeding or change in bowel habits, anything like that. Um, But if you're 45 years of age, it's a good time to go ahead and have that conversation with your healthcare provider about what your strategy is going to be for colon cancer screening. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel.